10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then from Joshua, chapter 1, verse 9. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open and study your word today, we ask that you use it to instruct us, convict us, strengthen and encourage us. Please bless this time as we seek to grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are to be as your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we mentioned, today is Reformation Day. The day we remember Martin Luther and his nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther taking that action uh, is one of the reasons you're here today and not at St. Teresa of Calcutta down on Woodenville Duval Road. Um, as Jeff said, we are, we are protesting something and the fact that you're here uh, means something. And so what happened over 500 years ago still has the, those repercussions. Um, and it took, it took a man like Martin Luther, um, a man who, like Jeff said, was, was standing up against his church, right? That was, that was the church. That was a church he believed in very deeply. It was the church. There wasn't a Roman Catholic church and a Protestant church. There was the church, and it was his church. And he was standing up against the, the head of that church. Um, at the time was Pope Leo X. And, uh, you know, who was the self-proclaimed um, God's vicar on earth, right? The, the mediator between God and men. And Luther, um, an Augustinian monk uh, in Germany, stood up to that. And that took a lot of courage. And we need to remember the courage it took for Luther to do that. But, like Jeff said as well, uh, it's, in a, it's in a tradition of people that stood up for the faith, that knew God was sovereign and God was in control. And so that's what I want to talk through this morning. And I want you to leave encouraged. 
And you might smile and say, well, that sounds nice. I want to be encouraged. I want to feel like I had a nice big warm hug and then head out into my day. Um, but being married to a grammar school teacher, I realize I have to look at words a lot more closely. And so when I see a prefix, like the Latin en, um, and I know that that is used to form verbs from nouns and adjectives, and it means to put in or put on, or to cause to be or to make into. So encourage is to cause to be full of courage or to put on courage. So when I say I want you to be encouraged, it means I want you to put on courage. And why is that important? Well, just uh, hit a couple of pieces of the passage that I read from Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's going to require courage. Children will rise up against parents. Uh-oh, that's going to take courage. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. We need to be encouraged and understand what that means. So courage is necessary for the road ahead. It's necessary for the week that you have in front of you. It's also needed for many of the situations that you will face in your lifetime. But what does the Bible say? So a lot of people will say, well, the Bible is just a list of do's and don'ts, right? And I think we can all acknowledge that it's a lot more than just a list of do's and don'ts. But if I pressed you, you could come up with a list of do's and don'ts, right? Do not lie, do not steal, do love your enemies, do not murder, do unto others as you'd have them do to you, love your neighbors yourself, and on and on. And those are certainly all biblical and very applicable to our lives. But surprisingly, none of them are repeated with all that much frequency. And certainly none of them come close to the repetition of the most popular command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It appears in one translation over 70 times. And that doesn't include variations such as fear not or um, do not fear. So what does that tell us? Clearly God knew that we as a people were prone to being afraid and wanted to make sure we knew that that was not how we were supposed to live. We we're not supposed to live as an afraid people. So I want to set some groundwork on being afraid first and cover three quick points about fear versus fear or being afraid of something or someone versus fearing God. So first, the Bible isn't saying there's nothing scary, so you don't need to be scared. Let's be real, life is scary. I came across the other day, like all the things in Australia that can kill you, and you see the giant spiders and things, like those are scary. Those are scary. But it doesn't mean we have to be scared of them, right? So bad example, but they are scary. The Bible gives two different commands that are translated in English fear, right? The confusion comes because in our English translation, sometimes both uses occur in the same verse or in verses next to each other. So um, one is referring to being afraid, like I'm scared of something. The other is a type of fear that means an intimidating feeling of reverence, right? And I think we all know that's like fear God, right? Further, and, and so like I said, some are used um, even in the same verse, which is uh, one of the verses I read in Matthew. But here's some examples. So Isaiah 43, 5, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. And that's clearly do not be afraid, right? Fear not, I am with you. Um, fearing God, Job 20, 28, and unto man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So fear, fear God, reverence, right? Reverent fear, like be in awe of, be in awe of what God can do. And then Matthew 
10.28, which I read at the beginning. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So be, don't be frightened or alarmed of someone that can kill the body, but be in awe of, have that reverent fear of God and what he can do eternally. So Jesus in that verse mixed both uses, and of course they're both translated in English, fear. Um, revere God because of his power, but also be in awe of what God can do. Um, another human being can obviously take your life here on earth, but Jesus says, don't be afraid of that. Life doesn't stop there, right? You're made in God's image, which means you're an eternal spiritual being. So be afraid, be in reverent awe of what God can do. So those who turn away and reject God will be judged, right? And not, re not receive eternal life. And God will, God, then you're eternally separated from God, right? We don't need to fear Satan because God is going to punish Satan. All he can do is kill the body. So secondly, the command to do not be afraid, this is where, like, that's, that's kind of the basis. And then this is where it gets really encouraging. The command do not be afraid more often than not is followed by an action that God is or will be taking, here are a few examples. Exodus 4.13, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Deuteronomy 3.22, do not be afraid of them, the Lord your God himself will fight for you. Joshua 10.8, do not be afraid of them, I have given them into your hand, not one of them will be able to withstand you. Luke 12.32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. God has provided a lot of examples in the Bible of people who were in scary situations and God didn't want them to be afraid because he was at work, right? So he's saying, don't be afraid. I've got this. You just stand firm. And then third, at least 10 times, do not be afraid is followed by do not be discouraged. Okay, so we have another Latin prefix, dis, D-I-S. It means apart, asunder, away, or having a negative or reversing force. Right? So other examples we have in English, disbelief, discontent, dishearten, dislike, right? gives the word an opposite meaning. So discouraged is the opposite of courage, and that leads to being afraid. So we need to be encouraged. We need to be filled with courage. Why should we be filled with courage? Because as Christians, the Lord is with us and in us. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we should not be discouraged. We need to be encouraged. End of sermon. Good? No, but here's what God does for us. He doesn't just say, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. He gives us examples. He gives us examples of men and women who had the courage to stand in the face of really unbelievable opposition in so many cases, who are in scary situations, and they're all throughout our Bible. And they're all very familiar stories. And, and that's the thing. A lot of times we're reading through our Bible every year, and you come, to the, you come to the familiar stories, and it's one of two things. You're like, oh, great. No, I know this story. And you love reading it again. Or it's, okay, I know the story. And you just kind of read through it. And you miss so much of the richness and the detail now because it's just, it's familiar. So I wanted to take a moment and go through some of these, and read some of the scripture, and talk about them. I started looking at this topic of courage when we were doing JTSF this past summer. So grades five through eight, I was like, um, I need to encourage this group. And then I started um, studying, and I was like, wait, I need this. 
This is encouraging. But really, we all need this, right? And as we remember on Reformation Sunday what Martin Luther did, and, and quite frankly, as we look at the world that God has us living in at the moment, we need to be reminded of all the men and women who went before us and has had amazing courage, who, who weren't afraid because they knew that God was with them. They were 100% confident that God was with them. So let's go on a tour. So I first want to look at Joshua and having courage for the big task. The opening of the book of Joshua, remember, this comes right after Deuteronomy, where Moses has led the Israelites from Egypt to the land promised to them by God. But Deuteronomy ends with the people still outside of the promised land. Right? And as you know, the generation of Israelites um, who came out of Egypt had fallen under God's judgment because their rebellion in the wilderness. And um, it's in that context, then, that the book of Joshua opens. So, uh, Joshua, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, going, toward, going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I just, Joshua 1.9, my favorite verse in the Bible, right? Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Joshua was given an enormous task. Lead this rebellious people whom Moses, Moses had trouble with for years, give them so much trouble that they end up not being able to enter the promised land, right? The, that whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. So God opens this, this chapter of Joshua's life with a task. Go into the land. Take them. With a command also, be strong and full of courage. He mentioned be courageous in there three times. So clearly, that was something that needed to be re reiterated to Joshua. And a promise. I will not leave you or forsake you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so, and so God goes through all that, and then verse 9 is really the summary again. God says, no, have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that was a, a real promise to Joshua in a real situation, in a big task. They're standing outside the promised land and have to go in and take it. But it's also very real for us. God sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within us is the reason we can have that same confidence that Joshua did. He is with us wherever we go. The Lord your God is with you. Our task might not be leading a rebellious nation into the promised land, but we each have ta tasks that God's given us that seem huge. It can be anything. Raising kids, huge task. 
Mortifying our fleshly desires, huge task. Standing against the cultural chaos, huge task. Living with a spouse, navigating a workplace, being Jesus to the world around us, all big tasks. We all have something, just like Joshua did. And we are commanded to have courage. God is with us. Next, I want to look at Esther. Esther, she had courage at a strategic moment. The more I read this story, the more I, I love all the details in Esther. You've got to read it slowly and carefully. It's just, it's, it's so uh, wonderful. It's so, it's so vivid, all the emotion in there. Like real, you get it's so much real human emotion in there. Um, Esther, it, she needed courage in a big task, right? Save her people from a complete genocide. Big task. Now, this is what I want you to picture. Esther is about 14 years old. Okay? She's an orphan being raised by her cousin. She's a Jew in Persia and has been chosen by the king to be his queen. Okay, 14-year-old, fish out of water, chosen to be queen. But she doesn't know that the king has just been tricked into signing in order to have all the Jews killed. Right? So this is, this is uh, from the book of Esther, uh, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hadath, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what was and why it was. Hadath went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Ooh, powerful stuff. She finds out her people are going to be exterminated, right, all the Jews, and she can't go talk to the king because if he doesn't hold out the scepter, that's death. That's the law. Mordecai basically says, uh, that's just an excuse. The book of Esther, interestingly enough, doesn't directly mention God. But in his rhetorical question, Mordecai alludes to divine sovereignty without calling it such. The principle is that God orchestrates everything and places particular people in particular places at particular times to accomplish his specific plans. And the book of Esther clearly reveals 
God's hand at work. The orchestration, the amazing reversals, the poetic justice that lead to the deliverance of the Jews in Persia all proclaim the sovereignty of God. In Esther's story, uh, the Lord redeems his people through the faith and courage of Esther, one strategically placed woman and her cousin. All the while, things are happening behind the scenes to accomplish that final result. But here are the two things I want you to notice about Esther's particular situation. First, she wasn't loud about being a Jew. She wasn't in anyone's face about it. She didn't go into the king the first time and say, oh, by the way, I'm a Jew. Twice in chapter 2, we're told she didn't tell anyone where she was from. Verse 10 says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And then verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Was this sinful? There's no indication that it was, but here's what she was doing at the same time. Esther 2.15, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, right? She was winning favor. Was she kind? Probably. Did she treat people well? Maybe. Maybe she was treating people how she wanted to be treated, but she was winning them over by her actions, not by being loud about being Jewish. But then there comes a time, a time that is perfectly strategic in God's plan. Esther has a choice. She can play it safe, as Mordecai says, probably die anyway. Or she can risk dying to save her people. She's probably thinking, I've, I've been trying to be nice to everybody, even the king, right? But he hasn't wanted to see me in 30 days, and if he doesn't want to and doesn't hold out the scepter, I'm dead. 14 years old. But Mordecai says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? How do you know this isn't exactly the plan God has for you? And that encouraged Esther. It gave her courage. Esther tells Mordecai to gather the Jews, fast for three days. She'll do the same. And then she plans to go to the king. And in some of the bravest words ever, she says, and if I perish, I perish. Courage to speak. It could mean death. Courage to trust, not knowing that God had already been preparing a way. God quickly turns things around. You know, uh, King, you know, Haman built a, a thing over there. Could use that on him. So do you need to introduce yourself as a Christian? Hi, I'm Eric. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. You can. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you don't think that's God's plan for you or the situation, that's okay. Live like a follower of Jesus. Live so they see Jesus in you. Point to God with your actions because there will come a time. In God's time, he will give you opportunities. He will put specific people in front of you at specific times to reach out a helping hand in the name of Jesus. Speak truth to someone in the name of Jesus to stand against evil plots, to resist a clear and present danger. And our prayer is that we can say, along with Esther, and if I perish, I perish. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God knows we need courage. He knows we're not courageous all the time, right? Gideon, pretty courageous guy in the book of Judges, 
So God wanted to prove to the Israelites there was God, not them, that triumphs over the Midianites. So we know the story, right? God whittles, the, whittles them down from 32,000 to 300 men. But God knows it's hard to look at 300 men in the camp of the Midianites and be courageous. So God encouraged Gideon. Judges 7. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, go down. Go down to the camp with your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. God knows we need courage in difficult situations. And God encourages people in a variety of different ways. It's going to look different in every situation. He did that for Gideon, and he did it for Esther, and he does it for us. And even many centuries after her death, right, Esther remains an example of courage. When she had to, she faced fear and did what was right, and God was faithful. So Joshua had courage in the face of a big task. Esther had courage at a strategic moment. And Daniel has a courage to worship, to live his life before the face of God. Right, the book of Daniel, I'm just going to read a bit from the beginning of chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I'm not going to spend too much time on this one, but two key takeaways here. First, life is worship. You live your entire life before God. So verse 4 again. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. It's not like Daniel lived one way when he was doing his government job and one way when, in, when he went into his room to pray. Darius even noted this later in verse 16 of chapter 6, as he's throwing Daniel in the lion's den, um, he declares to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Who you serve continually, right? Constantly, without interruption. That takes courage because sometimes things come to a head. So second, when the government tells you who you can worship, you obey God, not men. Really, the enemy will do anything to stop us from worshiping the one true God. And standing up to the enemy takes courage. You might say, well, he can't stop us from believing in God. But if he can distract us from bowing to him, 
That's a victory he greatly enjoys. In Daniel, they said you can only pray to the king. Satan has a knack for knowing how to turn our eyes away from God, right? You can only, you can only pray to the king. Sometimes it's obvious like this. Sometimes it's a lot more subtle. So we need to know the biblical truth to combat Satan and pray for the wisdom, determination, and courage to say no. And so verse 10, it's almost like Daniel knew this prayer mandate was coming down, right? He's waiting for it. But he's going to faithfully worship God like he does all the time. That's how, the, that's how the other satraps knew it was going to work. Because that's what Daniel did all the time. So we need the courage of Daniel so that people say we live a life of worship to God continually, all the time, which takes courage. Because then you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, another familiar story. A story that, I don't know, we grew up reading. It's in all the picture Bibles, right? They had the courage in the face of death. Daniel 3. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously, maliciously, intending to do harm, right? So they're malicious. They're out to get these guys. Accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Bingo answered the king and said to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Government mandating worship again. King calls them in because they, like Daniel, are faithful in their worship. They were disregarding an immoral mandate. King questions them, and they answer. And this, this is King Nebuchadnezzar they're talking to, right? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And he's thinking, really? I'm the king. You do have to answer me in this matter. And they do. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if he doesn't... If God chooses another path, if God's plan is different than what we think it is, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. King, we know you can snuff out our lives in an instant. We also know our God saves. We don't know what his purposes are here. We know one thing. We will not worship your idol. Those three guys could have just gone along with the crowd, right? It's three guys, crowds of people. Faded in the background. Maybe no one would have been the wiser. But like Daniel, they knew they lived their entire life before the face of God. Safety is a huge idol. It's a huge idol. 
Don't make waves, just go along with the crowd. That doesn't take courage. That's not the courage we're commanded to have. Courage is taking a stand even when the risk is really high. Courage is not bowing down to the idols of the world. Safety being an idol. I, David, David's another example of this. Um, when he's called before Saul in the Valley of Elah, the armies of Israel lined against, you know, across from the Philistines in 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, let no, no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And then David recounts how he you know, fought the bear and the lion when he came to attack the sheep, and he says, uh, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And David, in the mind of Saul and, and Goliath, was facing certain death, Right? Um, Goliath even says to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But David knew that he served a God who delivers, a God who saves. And so there's a confidence with David and with Daniel and with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they know that God has saved, he does save, and he can save. But even if he chooses not to, right, according to his perfect plan, God will be glorified. And they're not supposed to be afraid. They're supposed to be courageous. Next one I want to look at. Man who had more failures than he had successes. Samson. Samson was one of the judges of Israel. So his story's in the book of Judges. Uh, judges 16. This is at the end of Samson's life. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, our god has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country. He has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. And the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. When we hear the name Samson, right, we think of his tremendous physical strength. Unfortunately, it's easier to be physically strong than it is to be morally strong. Samson found this to be true again and again throughout his life. Before Samson was born, an angel of the Lord appears to his parents, right, and tells them that their son will be, begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And to symbolize that, he was to be set apart. No razor was ever to be used on his head. And as Samson grows, his physical strength quickly becomes legendary, and Samson leads Israel as a judge for 20 years. But his ability to lead was regularly undermined by his immorality and his foolishness, 
he repeatedly consorts with prostitutes, um, and it, it's almost as if his physical strength arose by sucking away his moral strength, as if Samson's great muscle power was fed by his lack of willpower. But after years of repeated immoral and foolish behavior, God had had enough. Samson had to reap what he had sown. The Lord knows, as, as many of us parents know, um, if your child won't follow your wise advice or make good choices that have good consequences, eventually your child will learn the hard way that bad choices have bad consequences. And so we all know Samson's bad choice with Delilah. And so they shave off his hair. His strength leaves him, right? And at Judges 16, 20, when Samson first awoke, he didn't realize he'd become weak. It says he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's, I think, one of the scariest thoughts in the Bible. If we repeatedly treat the Lord with contempt by our immoral behavior, we can travel so far away from the ways of the Lord that he can turn us over to our sin and says, go, go follow that God. And without the Lord to give him strength, Samson was doomed. They seized him, gouged out his eyes, and put him in prison. Then Samson found a different kind of strength and courage than he had had in the past. Samson found the courage to cry out to God. So at this, when, when Samson does this and he cries out to God, that's the first time in the entire story of Samson where we see him praying to God. How many times is that, right? We just, we want to go our own way. We want to follow our own idols, follow our own gods. And then when we're in a really bad situation, oh, that's right, I need to, I need to cry out to God. I need to pray to God. And you know what? Sometimes we won't because we're like, well, you know, I've been, I've been traveling this path away from God for so long that he, he, he doesn't want to hear from me. I can't do it. I just, I, I can't go back. I, like, I've been following, I've been following my own idols for so long. How can I go back? And so it takes courage. It takes courage to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness again, right? And Samson did. Forgive me from the spiritual blindness that I've had, right? That's what Samson said. I've, I've strayed. And, and so then he says, just this one time, just hear me, God, again. He's still motivated by a desire for revenge, right? It says that. He loses his eyes. He's motivated by a desire for revenge. But he, he is, he's willing to sacrifice his own life for God's people. And it was only because God got a hold of him and he cried out to God. Right? So this final act of courage, crying out to God for the strength, one last time, God, just hear me one time, give me the strength one last time, that final act of courage brought Samson more success than a lifetime of physical strength marred by his immorality and foolishness, right? It says he ended up um, killing many more when he died than when he lived. Starting the deliverance of the Israelites from the Philistines, which was the promise that had been made to his parents. And so we're like, well, that's Samson, that's just such a messy, messy story. Yes, it is. But Samson is listed with the great heroes of the faith in the book of Hebrews, along with Abraham and Moses and others. Right? And so what was Hebrews says? It says, encourages us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Well, that applies to Samson. Sin easily entangled him. It easily entangles us. 
So we need to throw that off so we can run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is, this is just a couple verses from that passage in Hebrews. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to talk of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You think any of that took courage? Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should be made perfect. So, and in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, well, all these people that we're talking about are a great cloud of witnesses. We are surrounded by them as Christians, having these in, uh, to study and read in our scripture. Let's, then let us also, since we have this cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which sing, clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, who is with us always, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the courage that empowers us to ask God to forgive our sins give us another chance to make a good choice. No matter how many times we've made a bad choice in the past, no matter how many times we've sinned in the past, this is the courage that empowers us to choose to sacrifice our lives for the good of God's people, for those whom God has called us to love. Indeed, for really the good of all people, right? We're called to love our enemies. This is the courage that empowers us to ask God to give us wisdom no matter how often we've been foolish in the past. We just, we can't be afraid to come to our Father and ask for forgiveness. Because we have Peter. So, lest we, lest we think, okay, yeah, no, that's good. They're courageous. I think I'm going to be courageous too. If something happens, I've got this, no problem. When something comes up, courage. So, Matthew chapter 26, we have Peter. Starting in verse 30. Right after Jesus and the disciples ate their last supper together, right, this is... Um, on the night Jesus was betrayed. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So the next 32 verses are Jesus praying in Gethsemane, getting arrested, appearing before Caiaphas, right? And then we get to verse 69. Peter is sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl comes up to him and says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out 
and wept bitterly. Walked with Jesus three years. Remember the passage I read at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10? Jesus speaking to his disciples as he sends them out to the house of Israel. Lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? Matthew 10 again. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Does that sound like Jesus' life, what he had just gone through? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. He said this to disciples like Peter. Peter, who at times is all too similar to us. Peter, who is questioned by a servant girl and immediately denies he ever knew Jesus. The disciples all walk with Jesus for three years. They see his miracles. Sure, they make a lot of dumb comments. They stumble, they fall, they listen, they learn. They see him crucified. They see him buried. And then they are called to a mountain in Galilee to see the risen Christ. And then we have the great commission in the book of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Luke reports that Jesus appeared to the disciples and helped them understand everything that happened, right? And this is in Luke chapter 24. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then as he ascends into heaven, he tells them in Acts chapter one, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we have Peter, right? The night Jesus crucified. I, I don't know him. Never heard of him. They see him crucified, buried. They, they meet the resurrected Christ. They see Jesus. He teaches them. And then he says, Just, wait here. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. And that's going to give you power. And you're going to go out. And of course, we know Pentecost, right? Pentecost arrives. They do. They get the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in languages that they never learned. And, um, and languages from all over the, the world. And then, and then they went. Right? Everything that Jesus said would happen to them in Matthew 10. Everything I just read. Right? Deliver you over to courts, flog you in synagogues, drag before governors. It all happened to them. It all did. Some of the early church historians write that the apostles divided up the world amongst themselves for the work of evangelizing, right? A book dating from the second century states that the disciples divided the countries among them in order that each one of the might, one might preach in a region which fell to him in the place to which the Lord sent him. So tradition says Peter took Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, basically modern Turkey. Thomas was assigned to India, John given Asia. Other traditions tell us that the apostles traveled far and wide preaching the gospel, but the, the one constant, that preaching always got them into trouble. 
As clueless as they may seem at times in the New Testament, they had seen the risen Christ, received the Holy Spirit, and that had changed them. They were courageous because the Holy Spirit was with them. The Lord their God was with them. So over the next 65 years, through the reigns of about 12 Roman emperors, they took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Peter had courage, and he went and he preached the gospel. It was a big task, evangelizing the world. They had the courage at the right time. Go, go make disciples of the nations. Now's the time. They did. Thomas might have doubted, but tradition says he traveled to India and established a church there. They lived their lives before the face of God, like Daniel, ignoring the dictates of the secular rulers and the persecution that followed. And they all had courage in the face of death. Paul tells us how he suffered for the faith. His courageous sufferings included being whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, near starvation, and in danger from various peoples and places. The first to die was James, the brother of John, who was killed by the sword upon the order of King Herod, as we read in the book of Acts. Church tradition holds that Peter was crucified in Rome, upside down. Andrew was bound to an X-shaped cross, also upside down, and preached to his persecutors for three days until he died. Matthew was martyred in a distant city in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was thrown from a pinnacle of the temple, then beaten to death with a blacksmith's tool. Philip hanged against a pillar in Phrygia. Bartholomew skinned alive. Thomas run through his spears. Jude killed with an axe in Syria. Matthias stoned and beheaded. Simon the Zealot sawn in half. Church tradition. Right? Not in our Bible. They preached faithfully, had courage, because they had the Holy Spirit. John, who cared for Jesus' mother, exiled to Patmos, dies of old age in Ephesus. Even though they were crucified, stoned, stabbed, dragged, skinned, burned, every last apostle of Jesus proclaimed his resurrection until his dying breath, refusing to recant under pressure from the authorities. That's courage. So just leave you with three final thoughts. First, God created you for a purpose. An angel probably did not appear to your parents like Samson's parents, but that doesn't mean there isn't one. God chose you, gave you a purpose before you were born. When God created heaven and earth, he knew one day you would find yourself right where you are at this moment in time. You've been created in the image of God and you were made for a purpose. One of the most important things you can do then is to seek God's guidance concerning what your main mission should be and how you can best fulfill it. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Second, we can't accomplish whatever God's purpose is for us in our own strength. The biblical message to us is we can confidently say with Paul, I can do all this through him who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. Peter also reminds us that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, 2 Peter 1.3. Our real purpose is not simply to go to school, get married, have a job. God has a plan to use you in unique ways to help build his kingdom. All those things can definitely be part of your purpose. And a lot of them might be your primary purpose right now. Have you thrown yourself wholeheartedly into what God's purpose is for you? How different would our lives, our families, our churches, our nation be if we walked with a great sense of mission and purpose, along with a steadfast trust in God's strength to help us fulfill it?
Where in your life do you need an encounter with God's strength? Maybe it's how you obey your parents, how well you do your schoolwork, other difficult circumstances. Maybe you need God's strength to walk through a hardship, an illness. Maybe you need God's strength to step in a direction of a, a purpose that he has laid on your heart that you're too afraid to follow. Wherever you're at, his strength is there for the taking. But be warned, when you understand the purpose God has for you and you tap into the strength he wants to give you, there will be people who oppose you. So many of the folks we have talked about faced opposition from enemies, from leaders, from rulers. Samson was often his own worst enemy. In much the same way as we seek to honor God, live our whole lives before the face of God, obey his will for our lives, we're going to face opposition. Jesus says in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. And chapter later, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, his warning isn't that, that, um, that we avoid confrontation, avoid opposition, is that we face it faithfully, right? And that takes courage. And he didn't leave us on our own. Keep leaning on me, he says in multiple ways. That's the, that's the promise. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He says in the Great Commission, surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So seek after God's purpose for your life. Count on his strength to help you fulfill it. Rely on his wisdom and abiding presence to overcome obstacles and face opposition. And with his help, you can walk in the supernatural strength of God, like all these men and women that we've looked at have done. We're at war. I, this is like we talk about facing, facing death, and a lot of these people did. And I think we don't realize that we're at war. The battle is real. That's why we have to have courage. That's why fear and being scared is a real thing. We wouldn't be told not to be afraid, do not fear, if there wasn't something out there that is scary. But God has called us to have courage. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we tack, tack on 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what we're called to do. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what all these men and women did. That's what Martin Luther did. So as you go, remember the words of God to Joshua. Have not I commanded you. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the histories of men and women who, like us, experienced situations where they were afraid and where you gave them courage. Use your word to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us for the tasks and the battles you have for us. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, that you have given us a helper to dwell in us and to speak to us words of encouragement. Thank you for calling us, for saving us, and forgiving Jesus as our elder brother. Bless us as we go from here. We ask all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.